grab your Bibles or open up your, your device, whatever you're using. We're going to be in Psalm 22 today. As you guys know, we have been going through this series, Jesus is the Story, looking in the Old Testament and how Jesus is the point of the story. And as you turn there, I want to share a little bit about, many of you, you may know this about me in terms of my spiritual journey. Um, man, I grew up in the local church. My dad was a pastor. And, and a part of being a part of this local church as a kid is that I memorized, I was a part of a program that required me to memorize tons of verses. Like I'm talking probably hundreds of Bible verses. Um, and, and in a lot of ways, like that was a strength of mine. Like I've always been really good at short-term memory. Um, sometimes I'm, I'm not great at remembering things for long periods of time. Um, but like, uh, for, for example, we got college students here. I, I vividly remember a time in college. My th- three of my kids are sitting here. Don't follow this example. Um, I remember showing up probably my junior of college to a psychology class. And one of my friends, her name was Joy, she sat right in front of me. And she just, she said, hey, are you ready for the test today? And I said, what test? Um, anybody been there? Like, I see you guys. Like, maybe that was a recent experience for you. Um, man, and so I said, hey, could I just borrow your notes real quick? And no lie, I probably skimmed her notes for less than five minutes, gave them back to her, and I did better on the test than she did. And she was so mad at me, so mad. But I, just an example, like I, I just am able to look at something and it clicks and I memorized it. And so as I was growing up in church, all these Bible verses I memorized, but I didn't see the picture of the puzzle. Like if I were to have brought a puzzle to you today and I didn't have the box and I just dumped all the pieces of the puzzle out, where would you get started? you would start with the edges because you don't need the picture to see the edges. You just look for the flat lines and you might could put the edges together. And then you like, I'm, I'm, I struggle with colorblindness. So I would like, I would be a wreck with the rest of the puzzle, but then you might start figuring out the colors. But if you don't have, like most of us, you set the, the picture of the puzzle box up and that's guiding you. Well, I had all of these puzzle pieces from the Bible, but I did not see the picture. In fact, I probably thought that I was putting multiple different puzzles together. Maybe a puzzle for the Old Testament, a puzzle for the New Testament over here, but there was no coherent story. But as I grew up and went to college, and, and there were some good things that I did in college. I did graduate, by the way, and I did, I did okay with my studies. Um, there were some just key scriptures that I, I had not memorized earlier. That really just struck me. Here's one of them. John 5.39. Jesus says this to the Pharisees. He says, um, you, you search the scriptures because you think that is in them that, that you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. What's he talking about here when he says the scriptures? What were the scriptures that he had at that point? It was just the Old Testament. You're searching the scriptures, and and it's true, like, that's the way of life, but he says, it is the scriptures that are about who? About me. Later on in that section, he says this in, in John 5, 46, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for Moses wrote of me. 
mind-blowing. Moses, Genesis, um, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He's talking about the law here. Moses wrote about Jesus. And so what I began to see here is that all these pieces of the puzzle were really about one puzzle picture. It was about the story of Jesus, God's plan of redemption. And you may be like, if you're here today and you're like, man, this whole Jesus and Christianity thing is new to me. I'm glad you're here. But one of the things that, that has really been convincing to me on the validity of, of, of the Bible and God's word is how do you have Genesis to Revelation and all these different puzzle pieces and a coherent story? This is the work of one God who by the work of his spirit is authoring these scriptures so that we see this beautiful picture of a puzzle about what God is doing for us in Jesus. So in light of that, I want us to go to Psalm 22 today. When we come to the Psalms, let me just step back for a second. When I preached a sermon a a month or so ago on, on the end of Deuteronomy, we looked at kind of the three main sections of the Old Testament, what's called the Tanakh, the, the law, the prophets, and the writings. You see that up here. I preached on Deuteronomy. We were talking about, you're looking for this prophet like Moses who knows me face to face. You go to that next section in the prophets, and Joshua begins, and he's talking about, hey, don't let this book of the law, Moses, depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night. And we see that section ends in the 12 and Malachi talking about not only Elijah, but this servant Moses. You're still looking for him. God's going to provide for him. When we come to this next section, which the it's it's often called, called the Psalms because it's the largest section of the writings. Psalm 1 begins in the same way that Joshua. Blessed, blessed is the man. Who, um, who does not walk in the path of the wicked, but on his law, he meditates day and night. This is the, the, the man of blessing. Again, the Psalm starts by going back and says, meditate on the law. Vaughn Roberts in his book, God's Big Picture, highlights three themes when we come to the Psalms. The first one is this. He says, you're gonna hear praise. We sing that song, let everything that has breath, praise the Lord. Hey, Danny, I'm coming. Danny, I'm coming, man. Uh, don't put me, no, don't put me on the team, man. I, I don't need to do that. You, you just overflowing praise. We're going to see that in the Psalms. The, the second theme is prophecy. Of all the books in the Old Testament, the book of Psalms is quoted in the New Testament more than any other book. So you're going to see prophecy. But the third thing he says is personal experience. We see that it's not just that God speaks to his people. His people speak to God. And and you're going to see these personal experiences. There are various moods from certainty and joy to doubt and depression. In fact, in a lot of ways, This is why many of us relate to the Psalms. Like some of you, you you may even have a rhythm of reading a Psalm every day. Um, Sometimes I'll just look, hey, what is it? It is the 19th. Okay, let's go to Psalm 19. Like if you don't know what to read, just look at what day it is and choose a Psalm or a proverb and just go there and read it. We can relate because of the personal experiences. We share similar 
emotions. When we come to Psalm 22, and let me give you a heads up today, we've got 31 verses. We're going to have them on the screen, but it's probably helpful for you to have your own Bible or device following along because I'm going to jump back and forth. So I just encourage you to like, read it on the screen, but also stay locked in here with me. We're told at the very beginning here that it's, it's to the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. Number of the psalms are attributed to David. He was the author here. And as we're going to see, David is going to alternate between experiences of abandonment and anguish and trust, praise, and prayer. And it's not like you have all the abandonment and anguish here, and then you have all of the trust and prayer. It's like a ping pong match where he's going back and forth. And so it'll be helpful for you just to be aware of we're going to be going back and forth into these similar or these contrasting experiences that David is feeling forsaken by God and yet expressing trust and confidence. In fact, it's similar to what we just sang about. Even when I don't see it and feel it, God is still working. So let's, let's jump in here. Psalm 22, beginning in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet, you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried and were rescued. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads at me. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet, you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help. Come quickly to my aid. 
deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. We're going to finish the psalm in a little bit, but I want to pause here and unpack and reflect on David's experience of abandonment and anguish. And what we see here is that there are three sections of abandonment and anguish. Verses 1 and 2. Then it's verses 6 through 8. And then it's 12 through 19. If it's helpful for you, you can't see this in my Bible, but I've kind of drawn parentheses around those three sections just visually for me to see this back and forth and what's going on in the text here. Look at verses 1 and 2. My God, these expressions of forsakenness, God's forsaken me. He's far from saving me. I cry, but I do not hear him. God's absence has almost become unbearable for him. One commentator says this, abandonment or alienation is the experience of suffering. When one hopes for deliverance, but no help is forthcoming. David is not silent, but God is. Maybe you can even relate. Again, I I don't know what you're bringing today, what, what you've experienced over the past week. Maybe these would be words that you would say, you know what, I feel forsaken. I feel abandoned. I do not feel as if God is hearing me. And Maybe a takeaway for me as I read through the Psalms. And I mean, we're talking about King David here, right? A man after God's own heart. You can be honest with God about your feelings. Hey, he already knows, like he's omniscient. Like he knows it already. So like sometimes it's just be helpful to just say, God, like I know you know this, but this is how I'm feeling right now. And in your prayers, just acknowledging that. We see that here in verses 1 and 2. If we skip down to verse 6, he says, I'm a worm I'm not a, and not a man. And, and you hear this picture of I'm scorned, I'm despised, I'm mocked. People are wagging their heads at me. They're mocking me and they're saying, hey, he trusts in the Lord. He's a Christian. He claims to follow Jesus. Let's see if his God shows up. Where is your God now? Let's see if he will save you. If God really cared for you, you wouldn't be be suffering. And you know what? This is how, and we're going to get to the lion here in a second, but this is how the devil wants to work in your life. Everybody's a, man, look at what it's costing you to follow Jesus. People are mocking you. They're scorning you. Hey, where's your God now? We jump down to verses 12 through 18. Here we see David's enemies described as bulls, a roaring lion, and dogs. You see the bulls of Bashan. There's some, if you want to look at some cross references, go to Amos 4.1 or Micah 7.14 here. You have this picture of strength and deadly intent. I've never been face-to-face with a bull, but I could just imagine 
That that's not a place. I get to think of your enemies that way or to think of, of a roaring lion here in verse 13. You think of cruelty, abuse of power, uh, hatred of godliness. Peter uses this language in 1 Peter 5, 8 to describe Satan is like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And this, this picture of, of dogs in verse 16. Dogs encompass me, fierce, powerful, evildoers. They attack him. They gnaw at his hands and feet. You see this picture of his enemies, but then he describes the anguish that he's feeling. Particularly, we see this in verses 14 and 15. I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is melted like wax. The impact of an alienation has impacted deep in his inner being. His strength is dried up. It says here, uh, my strength is dried up like potsherd. Potsherd or like sherds of pieces or pieces of broken pottery. This picture of brokenness. And then he says this, and you lay me in the dust of death. He's prepared for death. They're casting lots for his clothes. Death is imminent. Let me just pause here for a second. In a lot of ways, we might could say that David was experiencing a level of depression. You know, Tanner, a few weeks ago, preached on this. Um, Ed Welch has written a book on depression. And I just want to give you a little sidebar here on this. And in depression, he, he asked this question. And, and maybe before, I'll, I'll just say this, like depression is complex. It's, it's not just spiritual. There's physical, emotional, like there are all kind of pieces here. I want to speak briefly here to more of maybe the spiritual component of thinking about depression. He says, how can I do anything when I don't feel anything. Most people do things because they feel like doing them. For example, they get up in the morning because they feel like going to work or they feel like avoiding the boss's, um, the boss's questions when they're late or they feel like avoiding poverty. But in depression, you don't feel or whatever you do feel isn't going to motivate you to do anything that's profitable. It's more likely that you feel like dying, crying, running, disappearing, and avoiding. How can feeling-driven people set goals, have purpose, or get motivated when they don't feel? And here's how he answers that. You will have to learn another way to live. What's the other way? He gives an illustration. He says, you will have to be like the woman whose muscles still worked, but they stopped giving her information about her limbs. Get this image here. A woman whose muscles worked, she was not paralyzed, but her muscles stopped giving her information about her limbs. 
She wasn't paralyzed, but if she closed her eyes, she did not know where her legs were. She couldn't tell if she was standing, reaching, or resting. She couldn't walk. But gradually, by looking in mirrors and seeing her body rather than feeling it, she began to walk again. After much practice, walking began to feel natural, but she had to learn a new way to live and move. And this is what he says, in depression, the new way of living is to believe and act on what God says rather than feel what God says. It is living by faith. And this is what we see David fight for in these alternating sections. We see him fight to trust and believe in God, and he expresses that through prayer. So going back, we see him start in verses one and two. I feel forsaken. God doesn't hear me, but then he picks up in verse three. He says, and you see, like, circle it in your Bible, the word yet. Or jump down to verse nine, and you see the word yet. Like, there's the contrasting where we see the back and forth here. In verse three, yet, you are holy. So he's expressing, I feel forsaken. God, I don't feel you. I don't hear you, yet you have not changed. You are still who you are. You are holy. You are enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you, our father trusted. Our fathers, he's looking back. And here's what's helpful at times. When I feel overwhelmed, when I feel forsaken, when I feel abandoned, it's helpful for me to look back and see how God has been faithful. I need to be reminded time and time again, God, this is how you worked in my life. And maybe it's helpful for you. I haven't been as good the past, few, the past month. But a few months ago, I just put by my bed a little journal that I started to write in. My goal was every night to write three things that I was thankful for that reminded me of God's grace in my life. And at times I'll look at that and I want to go back and I want to read and be reminded, God, this is what you did today. This is how you've answered prayers in my life. I, I'm not forsaken. You are near and you hear me. So David's looking back and he's, he's talking about Israel here. And, and, and David reflects on who God was. And he was familiar with God's acts. Surely David would have meditated on the law day and night. And he would have heard about the, um, the plagues and the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea, and the provision of manna every day for 40 years. I'm 42. I hesitated because my wife's birthday was yesterday, and she's a little bit older now. Um, I love you, Lee, serving in kids. I have an amazing wife. 40 years. God was faithful, and he provided for his people. David knew that. Our fathers trusted in you. To you they cried, they were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But then in verse, verse 9, he makes it personal. He goes from Israel trusted, look what he says in verse 9. Yet you are he who took me. Hey, it's not just that you've worked in Tanner's life, or Jacob's life, or Joshua's life, or Monica's life. You took me from the womb. 
You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb, you have been my God. My temptation in life is to fix my eyes on my anguish, my abandonment, and my evildoers. But the new way to live is to live and fix our eyes on God. Discouragement, frustration, and fear are crushed when we take eyes off of ourselves and our surroundings and fix them on God. Here's what David's saying. God, you not only showed yourself faithful to Israel, you've been faithful to me from the very beginning of my existence. And since God was close with him previously, he can now pray, verse 11, be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help you. Then he swings back. Bulls, lions, dogs. I'm at the point of death. But then we see in verse 19, but, circle the word but there, but you, oh Lord, do not be far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Now we see in reverse order. We've gone bulls, lion, dog. Now we see what's God saving him from? Dog, lion, and bull. Say, Deliver my, from the sword, from the precious life of the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And then this statement, and this marks a complete shift in the psalm. It's, a, it's not a request. It is a statement, a declaration. You have rescued. Or if you look at the bottom, there's a footnote too. You have answered me from the horns of the wild oxen. This is to be understood as a triumphant shout. Which, mark, which marks the shift in tone and introduces the next major section. But before we move on, I want to take us to the Gospels. Because surely as you read through this, you were hearing echoes of what Jesus experienced when he was crucified. I want us to read here from Matthew 27, beginning in verse 35. says this, and when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there, and over his head they put charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. 
So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge filled with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. You see, Jesus' experience is very similar to that of David's. We see him express abandonment and anguish. Did you hear the echoes in the text there? Jesus' executioners divided his garments and cast lots just like they did for David. In fact, if you were to go to John 19, 24, it explicitly quotes Psalm twenty two eighteen and mentions that Jesus fulfilled this scripture. Jesus experiences mocking and insulting like David did. It says they mocked him. You're the son of God. You saved others. You can't save yourself. Hey, he, he, you're following Jesus. Let's see if your God shows up. Jesus is mocked with similar language. Jesus cries out with a question to God, just as David does. That's probably the most ringing part of this psalm. Psalm 1 begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus on the cross, Jesus, the son of God, God, why have you forsaken me? How are we to understand this cry that Jesus shouts here? I'm going to jump into it in a second. But I would also like to just help us to see that that Psalm 22 verses 14 through 18 where he's talking about my life is poured out like water. My, my, um, my bones are out of joint. My heart is melted like wax. My strength is dissipated. I'm on the verge of death. It's describing here the same anguish that Jesus is going through on the cross. But why does Jesus experience this abandonment? One author by the name of Rick Gamash has written a, a crucifixion narrative that's been helpful for me over the years in thinking about this. He's reflecting on, on this cry of abandonment and why Jesus would feel that. And he says this, Jesus is startled by a foul odor. It isn't the stench of open wounds. It's something else, and it crawls inside him. He looks up to his father. His father looks back, but Jesus does not recognize these eyes. They pierce 
the invisible world with fire and darken the visible sky. And Jesus feels dirty. He hangs between earth and heaven, filthy with human discharge on the outside and now filthy with human wickedness on the inside. And it's as if the father speaks, son of man, why have you sinned against me and heaped scorn on my great glory? You are self-sufficient and self-righteous. You rob me of my glory and worship what's inside of you instead of looking out to the one who created you. You are greedy and lazy and a gluttonous slander and gossip. You hate your brother and sister and you murder with the bullets of anger fired from your own heart. You oppress the poor and deal slaves and ignore the needy. You love money and prestige and honor. You have no self-control. You're an anxious coward. You do not trust me. The list of your sins goes on and on and on. And I hate these things inside of you. I'm filled with disgust and indignation for your sin consumes me. Now drink my cup. And Jesus does. He drinks for hours. He downs every drop of the scalding liquid of God's own hatred of sin mingled with his white hot wrath against that sin. This is the Father's cup. Omnipotent hatred and anger for the sins of every generation, past, present, and future. Omnipotent wrath directed at one naked man hanging on a cross. The father can no longer look at his beloved son, his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself. He looks away. Jesus pushes himself upward and howls to heaven, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Silence. Separation. Jesus whispers, I'm thirsty. And he sags. The merciful centurion soaks a sponge in sour wine and lifts it on a reed to Jesus' lips. And the sour wine is the sweetest drink he has ever tasted. Jesus pushes himself up again and cries, It is finished. And it is. Every sin of every child of God has been laid on Jesus and he drank the cup of God's wrath dry. I would plead with you today to find salvation in the true and greater sacrifice. When we read Psalm 22, God is paving the way for a righteous sufferer like David to give his life so that you may have life. This is what it means in the New Testament when we read about Jesus, who is the propitiation for our sins. What that means is Jesus drank you and I 
have been storing up wrath. Think of a cup and, and my sin against a holy God. We hear David cry, yet you are holy. My sin against a holy God has been storing up God's just wrath against me that I deserve and that every single one of us, we are either going to experience God's punishment and wrath or we're gonna trust in Jesus who exhausted God's punishment and wrath. This is the gospel. Like, we're not here today just because, like, we want to pat each other on the back. We're here today because we're going to face eternal separation and abandonment from God if it's not apart from Jesus Christ. This is about him, his life, his death, and his resurrection. He is the hope for all of us. God made him who knew no sin. Why would Jesus feel forsaken by God? This is Jesus, the perfect son of God, who would never sin and face the guilt or shame of sin. To now see his father look upon him with wrath and he's drinking the cup. Do you remember what Jesus prayed in the garden? He's praying with such anguish that it says it's like drops of blood were coming from his eyes. And he says, Father, if there's another way, take this cup from me. Surely there's another way. Son, there's no other way. You must drink the cup. And Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done. And he drinks the cup of God's wrath dry for you. Christ died to bring us to God. Jesus' shoulders bore the sin that he never knew and he will never know the depths. We will never know the depths of his agony. And yet, when we see Jesus, he experienced abandonment and anguish, but we also see Jesus trust and pray. Jesus still cries out to the one he no longer senses. Even in our worst moments, we should do the same. And while we reflect on Jesus' sacrifice for our sins, let's not forget that when Jesus quoted Psalm 22 verse 1, he knew how the psalm would end. So let's go there. Let's pick back up in Psalm 22. And I got to move along a little quick here. Psalm 22. In verse 22, it says this. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in all of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. The afflicted, sorry, verse 25, for from, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Going back to David's response here, after this exclamation in verse 21, where God has answered and heard him, he now responds with praise. 
As one commentator notes, the taunts of the mockers are drowned out by the songs of the faithful. Look at what he does here in verse 22. Praise him, glorify him, stand in all of him. Cry to him, praise him in the great congregation. Do this not just by yourself, do this with others. Fear him. And what's the motivation? We see this in verse 24. The motivation for these praises is he has not despised or bored us. He has not hidden his face. God will never completely hide his face from his covenant children, and he will rescue those who trust him. And I believe Jesus knew this when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knew, here's the irony. He was going to face the cup and drink every drop of the cup of God's wrath. And yet it was that very moment that he was giving his life for the salvation of us, of the world. He was confident that God would bring him through even though he drank every last drop. I believe when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He also knew verse 24, he has not hidden my his face from me. He has heard when we cried to him. So the second truth is, in addition to finding salvation, it's worship the true and greater sacrifice. Where do our response in light of what Jesus has done is worship. This is why, man, this great book in Romans. You read all the way through Romans 1 through 11, and it's the theological unpacking of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And then Paul rubs in Romans 12, verse 1, I plead with you, I therefore appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And all of what Jesus has done in light of this, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In light of the true and greater sacrifice, you offer your life as a sacrifice. Our following Jesus now is not to earn God's approval. It's because we have earned it in Jesus. The cup is dry. This is my new identity. I'm forgiven. I'm washed. I'm clean. I'm a child of God. I worship. God, here's my life. What do you want me to do? And this psalm ends in verse 27 through 31, Psalm 22. In addition to this picture of worship, we're going to see it turn global. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth. It's now an invitation, everyone. All the ends of the earth, remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him, and it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. We hear echoes here of this Genesis 12, 3 that Jacob preached to us. I will bless those who bless you. And all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. The nations will worship through this blessing. This is what Jesus does. 
David calls his hearers to join an ever-widening circle of praise and worship. The entire earth is to know what God has done so that they might worship him. This is why as a church, our heart beats that every man, woman, and child in greater Boston would have repeated chances to hear and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why as a church, we're gonna be sending out people to go plant churches in neighboring towns so that every town will have a church that is preaching the good news of Jesus. This is why we wanna send laborers to the nations so that the nations might worship. This is for rich and poor, those who can keep themselves alive and those who can't. That's what the picture here. This is what the gospel, no matter where you come from or where you've been, it's an invitation. Jesus is saying, the gospel is for you. And so I invite you, the third truth, we proclaim the good news of the true and greater sacrifice. God is king over all. And this praise extends even to future generations. Each generation will tell the story of God's redemption and add what God has done for them. And do you know where this began? Right after Jesus said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Do you know what the Roman centurion says? Surely this man was the son of God. The Roman centurion that helped crucify him was one of the first of the nations to step into saving faith. Have you made a profession and trusted and found salvation in this true and greater sacrifice? It is as simple as confessing your sin and believing and trusting in what Jesus has done for you on the cross and then following him with your life. And you can do that today. As we wrap up, I'm going to invite the band on stage. And, and here's my final point, really the main point. David's suffering points to a true and greater sufferer whose sacrifice enables global worship. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're going to have a time of prayer down here. And, and I, I don't know what maybe your next step is. Maybe for, for some of you, it's like, I need to embrace this sacrifice and trust in Jesus for the very first time. Maybe for some of you, you need to think through what is your, your yet you statement? Yet you are holy, yet you are near. Like maybe it's just coming and saying, God, I'm in the middle. I feel like abandoned or anguished, but yet you are this. And you just need to confess that. And maybe you wanna, you wanna pray that with somebody. We'll have people down front praying with you. Maybe God's just inviting you to pray and say, God, just, just be honest about how you're feeling right now. Just be, I know it, be honest. And just talk to God about how you feel. Maybe God's inviting you to pray something similar to David. God, I need you to be near to me right now. I need you to deliver me from this. Rescue me from this. Show me a way out of this. 
Maybe it's an invitation to praise. I praise you. I glorify you. I want to stand in all of you. Maybe it's an invitation to confess, God, I know you've not hidden your face because I stand in Jesus and that you view me the way you view Jesus. And it's just to rest in the good news of the gospel. Or maybe it's just to come and humble yourself for the first time and say, you know what, I'm tired of of pushing and I'm ready to receive God's grace. Whatever that is, I'm gonna pray and then join us and, and, and pray with somebody down front as the Lord leads. Father, God, we thank you for these promises. You are not far off. You have not hidden your face from those who trust you. God, we thank you for the hope of the gospel that because of Jesus, the cup is empty and that we can experience eternal life. God, we cry out to you praise, glory, honor. And God, we long for the nations to worship. We long for our city, every man, woman, and child. God, would you continue to use us to be people who make much of you in our city? God, we love you. We pray all this in Christ's name.